Welcome to the Creative Conversations. In today's world of increasing intolerance, sometimes honest conversation between us is the only way forward. Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism, is an initiative of the Sweden-based nonprofit organization Stories for Society, which engages in transformational storytelling. The purpose of this initiative is to give rise to a force for peace by building a global network of established authors whose life stories, work, and commitments demonstrate and engage the impact of intolerance, extremism, and war. It is through the arts and our practice of rigorous and honest conversation that we can make a difference. This series records conversations between creatives for this purpose. Julie Lindahl was raised in 10 countries on four continents. She is an American and a Swedish citizen, and she's lived in Sweden for the past 22 years with her husband and twins. Julie holds a BA from Wellesley College, an MPhil in International Relations from Oxford University, and she was a Fulbright Scholar in Frankfurt. Earlier in her career, Julie worked and traveled in many countries as a consultant in the developing world. She is now a contributor to WBUR's Cognoscenti and has been featured on National Public Radio. She's the founder of Stories for Society, a nonprofit organization for renewing the art of story making among youth for the sake of social transformation. And based on a program series featuring her story, WBUR won the 2018 Edward R. Murrow Award for Excellence in Innovation, as well as the 2018 Associated Press Media Editors Award for Innovation in Storytelling. Julie is also the author of a number of books about living in the Nordic region. I'm so glad to have the chance to speak with you, Julie. Same here. Can you start out, please, by reading a segment to us from your book, The Pendulum? Yes, sure. I thought I would read a passage that is one of the conversations portrayed in The Pendulum between my grandmother and me. A great deal of the book concerns our relationship and our conversations and the way over time I I started to pick up things about her past that she hadn't shared with me. So this conversation takes place in her apartment back in 1989, when I was in my early 20s and had begun to study international affairs. So this is my grandmother who asked the first question. Now, tell me, what are you studying, she asked, despite the fact that I had explained it to her many times. This had nothing to do with her memory, which was clear as a well-polished mirror. Instead, it had to do with the fact that what was history to me was life to her. She couldn't recall my academic terminology, instead capturing history in the simple and eloquent language of her memory. International affairs, I replied, were studying the Cold War. Oma temporarily removed her toothpick from her mouth and waved it around like a tiny saber. War, war, people will never stop fighting. Man has an evil inside of him that he will never be freed of. There will always be wars. There was a tone of bitterness that was blissfully interrupted when she shoved the toothpick back in between her teeth. Her head shook nervously as she continued picking. As a young person with a future ahead of me, I had difficulty accepting Oma's thesis. Yet I didn't get in her way as I regarded listening to her 
as something like opening a living history book. Besides, the continued division of her country for over 40 years had fostered a deep-seated cynicism about the science of international affairs that, as a student, I treated with such reverence. "'You can read all about it in here,' she said, patting her well-leaved copy of War and Peace, one of the few books that remained in her collection. Bloodthirsty princes battled with one another for no better purpose than the ridiculous glory of spilling blood. How many young men believed them and returned, if they did at all, without arms and legs? Terrible! Terrible! But no one speaks about that any more. It's all about us and the so-called awful things that we Germans did. But let me tell you, it was nothing compared to what people did to one another back then. She tapped her hand on the cover of the book, as though it was her most reliable piece of evidence in a grand defense. Oma's logic was convoluted, and for this very reason I avoided going down this hopeless avenue that she so often chose. She was my grandmother and had always been good to me. I wanted to stay in that space to continue to receive the benefits of being her granddaughter and not become entangled in this fruitless argument. I have some great new friends at university, I said, attempting to shift the discussion. Oh ho, now that's very nice. A dashing young man, perhaps? Lifting her head, she set the toothpick aside in the pink glass ashtray on the side table to her right. I lied and shook my head. There was someone, but I didn't want to say anything about it, in order to avoid returning to the embarrassing subject of my fertility. My efforts to create a diversion had rapidly come to a dead end, and Oma was free to continue with her catharsis, which now took a disturbing turn. And what do they say about that business with the Jews at your university? I'm sure they tell you all sorts of lies. Let me tell you straight, from someone who was there, that nothing like this ever happened. It was all a lie by the media, so that we Germans would feel that we had to keep our heads down. She bowed her head in submission, eyes and voice lowered, as both hands surrendered, palms down on the table. After a moment's silence, she lifted her head and tapped the table disdainfully. Germans were responsible for everything bad, but no one ever talks about the good that we did, and doesn't everyone seem to want to come and live here? Her eyes suddenly began to flicker uncontrollably behind the shaded spectacles, and she leaned back on the headrest of her armchair. Oh, my eyes, I've tried everything, inoculations from the doctor and all manner of treatments, but nothing helps. It's an illness of the nerves, you understand, to do with everything we've been through. It was all too much. She raised her head slightly and shook her finger. But the Holocaust, I can assure you, did not happen. Each of those last three words was said slowly and deliberately. On previous occasions, when Oma had defended the Third Reich, I let her utterances pass as momentary lapses of temper and signs of aging. Perhaps then I would never have to see them again, which meant that I could avoid being faced with the prospect that there was another side of my grandmother that didn't at all match the gentle person I loved. Julie, thank you so much for sharing that passage with us. I will say that when I picked up this book and began reading it, I instantly realized that the jacket copy and the blurbs, as accurate as they are, still had not prepared me for this book. Um, the story of how you slowly unearthed the truth about your grandparents' participation in some of the infamous acts um, 
of the of the Nazis and your grandfather's role in the SS. The story of you unearthing it was powerful enough, but then you go on beyond the point where many people many people would say, okay, unearthing it was enough, and then you go on to wrestle with what to do with it. And the search for truth takes you to Germany, to Poland, to Brazil, to Paraguay. I'd like to just ask you about the journey from silence to speech. I wanted to specifically ask, at what point did you first have an inkling that the story you were being told, maybe in childhood, about your family might not be true? Did you sense that all along, or was there a moment when you realized? Well, the moment when I realized it certainly wasn't true was when I first went to the the Berlin archives, because... um, I mean, a hundred pages of documentation were identified about my grandparents that made it impossible to deny their engagement in the SS, or at least my grandfather's engagement in the SS, making my grand grandmother an SS wife. The documentation showed all the places that he'd been in, in, in occupied Poland throughout the duration of the war. So uh, at that point, I knew that I hadn't been told the whole truth. At the same time, I think it's it's important to state that it's possible that through my research, I ended up knowing a lot more than anyone in my family ever knew because um, perhaps my grandmother, of course my grandmother knew, but I don't, I don't want to suggest that uh, all of my grandparents' children, including my mother, knew exactly what my grandparents got up to. They were very young children, so they didn't know exactly what had occurred. There was probably no way for them to to actually know about that because parents at that time who supported the Third Reich, who were in the SS after the war, didn't speak with their children about this. At the same time, they created a very confusing situation by not showing remorse and not, not making any effort for the most part to leave their old ideology behind them. There were very few cases where that happened. And am I right that when you were a child, you were just told that your grandfather had been a farmer in Poland during the war? Yes, that he had been an an estate manager. And you can't say that what I was told was not true. He, He was an estate manager, but he was an estate manager for the Ministry of Agriculture and uh, would not have had the role that he he ended up having unless he had been in the SS. Because uh, all of these people who were stationed there were also expected to fight the racial war. So they were not purely stationed there in order to transform agriculture. Yes, that was one thing, uh, and that was regarded as very important, but they were also expected to wage this, what you could see as, regard as a, as a rather counterproductive racial war in a way, because you, you can't make a, you can't make a, um, an area, a country productive uh, if you're killing off the people who farm it. It's a situation where um, I was told part of the story and a very important part of it, perhaps the most important part of it, was in fact left out, omitted. Then my grandmother, who actually had all of the information, just outright lied. She didn't tell the truth, and I, I confronted her with that later on because I, I didn't want us to have, have a lie between us. Right. Can you say something about what your grandmother's role was? I mean, what did an SS wife do? What did she do during those years? Mm-hmm. 
Women under the Third Reich were expected to focus on on the bearing of children, at least all women who were regarded as racially desirable. And uh, you have to forgive my terminology, but this is this is the way they thought. So she was, uh, you know, a, a racially desirable person in the perspective of the Reich. So she turned her focus entirely to childbearing and also to participation in a large women's organization. And the focus of that organization was how to how to rear your child, you know, how to how to raise your child. And there were very distinct ideas about that uh, that emerged at that time because in a totalitarian state, of course, it's very important that children are raised to support that totalitarian state as well as to support the idea of of a racial struggle. So my grandmother became a sort of local leader, training other women. And then later on, when they were in the occupied territories, she um, so in occupied Poland, she was a part of uh, a national so-called welfare organization, which had uh, several roles. But one of their more shocking roles was to redistribute the belongings of people who had been sent to concentration camps for for the so-called war effort. So basically clothing and belongings were redistributed to Germans who were in, in, in you know, in, in, in the occupied territories. So my grandmother was very fully involved in this racial war, but in another way. I find it very important to understand the role that women played in this because it's understated. Usually when we tell the history of that time or read the history of that time, it's a history of men. But uh, women played an extremely important role and the legacy of the role that people like my grandmother played has been very much felt through the generations because after all, what she was involved in was the raising of children leaving trauma, you know, among those children, among her own children, which was then also passed on in later generations. And this is something that is coming up increasingly also in the German media. There's been some discussion about the effect of these very harsh child-rearing techniques in these families. There was a line where you say you refer to yourself as a granddaughter for whom the war had neither a beginning nor Mm -hmm. an end. And I wonder if you can share a bit about how you came to write this book. Yes, that is a long and winding story, and I'll try to summarize it as briefly as I can. I mean, I'm a writer, like you, and I process many of my own life experiences and thoughts and ideas through writing. And as soon as I started to think about this, and as soon as I received the first information from the German National Archives, I or the German Federal Archives, rather, I started to write. But that doesn't mean I started to write with the intention of publishing anything. I wrote in order to process what I was feeling, which was just very shocking and uh, and difficult as I was going along in this research and of course didn't didn't anticipate that I was going to continue with this over years I kept on writing 
but all the time thought that this is for me, this is possibly for my nearest, possibly for my children someday, but maybe I should just put it away. Some days I could walk around out in, in the park and think, what a relief, I've been able to put it away, and I know it now, and that's enough. But at some point, it became clear to me, somewhere around 2014, that the world was changing, and there were political forces that were rising that reminded me of this period of history that I had spent so much time immersed in. Uh, that that also was a terrible shock. And uh, as I realized that, particularly I was invited to a, a conference here in Stockholm, which asked the question of whether fascism was rising once again in Europe. And I was asked to be one of the co-hosts of it. Unexpectedly, as it was election week in Sweden, very many key figures in the society turned up and we sort of wondered why they were there, because it was election week. Um, and the reason was because they felt that this question wasn't being seriously discussed anywhere else, and it was a serious question. And so at that point, I realized that I needed to publish what I had found, because I had a responsibility to do that. I think many people ask me whether I bear a sense of guilt or shame for for my grandparents' deeds. And, and I've been through a long journey in which I've wrestled with all that and dealt with that. And, and at this point, the answer is no. But what I do carry with me is a sense of responsibility. And so it was in that context that um, I decided that uh, the story needed to be shared. Well, you wield that sense of responsibility powerfully. It struck me when I was reading your book that that evolution, uh, there's an evolution from shame uh, and on to the sense of responsibility. And actually, maybe I'll, um, I'll just uh, bring us to a line that's in your memoir that, that really struck me. Um, it's from a scene in which you are speaking with your grandmother and with your Auntie Best, and your grandmother says some disturbing things, and you describe your Auntie Best as looking like a frightened child deserted by her unrepentant parent, in the burning redness of shame and confusion. And you go on to say, in that moment, I saw what had happened in our family. Shame had been left to the next generations. Those responsible had shunned responsibility and the unrecognized victims were their children. I think so often after a, a cataclysm, some of the emotional processing is left to subsequent generations and you, you do a beautiful job describing this dawning sense of shame. And then it seems to me that there's something that happens in the segments of the memoir in which you talk about actually going to Poland and meeting people who quite literally bear the scars of things that your grandfather did. It seems like there's something in there where shame morphs into a sense of responsibility almost through those conversations. I wonder, I, I don't know if I'm reading that right, but I wonder if you might say something about what those conversations were, were like, what it was like to meet those survivors and to mm -hmm. speak with them and what they had mm -hmm. to say to you. Yes, those conversations meant everything for the, the transformational process that I needed to go through. I mean, I didn't know that I was going to go through this, but they made it happen. I mean, I had lived with a sense of, quite a strong sense of shame 
throughout my life. I didn't know what it was about because no one had, no one in my family had told the truth about my grandfather's role in the Third Reich and, and the Second World War. Uh, but that shame was nevertheless transmitted in various ways, mostly through, you know, feelings of anger from the adults that then, that then I took upon myself because I thought that I had done something wrong. And, um, you know, it's very easy for a child to think they've done something wrong if an adult is angry. And if the adults they depend upon are, are angry about something, the child automatically takes that uh, upon themselves. And, and, and that's what I did. But I, I really had absolutely no idea what, what this could be about. And so I think this is also one of the missing pieces, you know, for people who are, are not part of uh, not members of these types of families. It's a missing piece of information. Most don't understand that uh, usually you don't feel this sense of shame because you know uh, exactly what happened and, and, and you feel bad about it is because you don't know what happened because mostly there's a gaping silence inside the family or a different sort of story is told, but there's still a lot of silence around the truth. So out of that, there's there's a sort of unknowing shame. It's a blind sort of shame. And of course, shame also means that you feel bad about yourself, not really bad about something that you have done. In a way, you, you start to feel bad through and through. So anyway, these meetings with the survivors who were really Polish laborers, so these were people who had worked on my uh, grandfather's estates, who had previously worked on, on large estates that had been owned by Polish landowners who had been thrown out or uh, murdered quite frequently or deported, and then presumably murdered. These were laborers who were forced to remain on these estates and essentially work as slave laborers. And um, they had been tortured uh, by beating, terrorized on a daily basis. One of them had a scar over his right eye because my grandfather beat him when he was a young boy. There were varying reactions, but these were important for me to see. Some didn't want to shake my hand. Some, you know, went actually went physically back into the the memory of, of a cert, of that time and started to live in it and become traumatized. And of course, then I started to wonder whether I was being terribly selfish and, and whether you know, this really wasn't very helpful for these people. But there were uh, two families that um, seemed to be glad that finally somebody had turned up and listened to their story. And remember, these also were not you know, wealthy families uh, with means who... Um, had the possibility to travel and and go to Germany or or allow some kind of reconciliation to occur. These were poor people who were living out in in rural areas, and one of them in particular, who told me his story for several hours, could see that I was carrying around this very very heavy burden, and he just didn't want me to do that anymore because he was, I guess, because he thought he was an old man who had, you know, lived his life, and he didn't want to see someone like me, younger than him, who had, you know, 
turned up like this in a good spirit, opening to listening, live the rest of her life feeling miserable with this heavy sense of shame. And so he shook me up. He took took my arms and shook me and said, um, it wasn't your fault. Uh, go outside, experience the beauty in my garden, and live your life. And um, with that, I really was able to put a lot of difficult things behind me, yet at the same time grasp that I had a strong need to do something with this story that could help other people to understand that we must never again move in this direction and that we have to be we have to be alert to all of the signs that we see today that tell us that we may be moving in a similar direction and that we need to stop it we need to do everything we can to stop it well in a sense you do a beautiful job showing that that's what history and memory is for it's not to trap us in the past is to help us make the future mm-hmm. different. And and yet, one of the things I think is so powerful about your memoir is that without making any of it into an excuse in any way, you amplify our understanding of your grandmother as a as a full person in, in a way that I just find heartbreaking. There's a passage in the book where you um you're speaking with her and she starts telling you about basically being abused by her own husband by the violence and we see that she is on the one hand yes she is full-on part of the perpetrators uh, as in her own actions um, and in the things she's doing to support that war effort and she is also being victimized by her husband. And there's just a powerful moment. I'm just going to read a couple of lines here. I was struck by Oma's slim calves and ankles, which were just like M's. They seemed so thin and helpless, sticks that could easily collapse when the brutes of history struck. Why did you stay with him, Oma? The tears threatened to well over my lower lashes. She heaved a sigh full of regret. That was what one did, but at the very end, I didn't. I left and eventually went home. And your grandmother goes on to speak and refer to her own depression. And I found that so powerful because to understand people, we have to see their full picture as well. So your grandmother is, uh, it comes across as a a painfully real human being. Uh, And I think you do just such a beautiful job writing about her. If I just uh, add something to that, I think it's this is another dimension of of women in the Third Reich who who were, you know, certainly in support of that whole regime. They very often, unlike the the men, they dwelt in a in a gray zone because the the perspective of women during that time also encouraged male violence. It encouraged a sort of, I mean, Nazism encouraged a sort of celebration of male violence and the macho and so on, which, of course, uh, automatically made women into to victims. Yes. Can I ask you, as you were working, was there any point when you considered not writing the book, when you considered not exploring these painful questions because, of course, it it 
forced you to have very difficult conversations within your family and also outside of your family? I mean, I, I think I repeat several times uh, in the book my own self-doubt about what I'm doing. Each new discovery and the prospect of visiting each new archive is also a potential moment of stopping this insanity, what seemed like insanity at the time, and turning back and, and stopping. In some ways, the writing of the book was like that. Uh, there are many different versions, you know, with different emphases. One thing I'm very pleased about is that it went through such a very long editing process over, over several years, because the editing process was a way for me to in a way, slowly heal and be able to present those different sides of a person, particularly my grandmother, which otherwise I, I couldn't have done because um, early in the process when I made the first discoveries, I was quite angry. Yes. And anger is not a particularly helpful tool in expressing nuance and in presenting all sides of a situation or a person. Uh, anger tends to be pretty one-sided. So taking time, having several versions, allowing a long editing process to occur was also an opportunity to allow me to see past my own anger at the real people and the real situations as far as I could make them out. I don't think it would have been realistic if I had portrayed my grandmother as an, you know, an awful raving Nazi, because, okay, in certain moments she was, but in other moments she wasn't. Yes. In other moments, she was simply a loving grandmother. Yes. And I do think that's essential. I think that's part of the essential work of repair, because if we act as if Nazis or people who are involved with uh, racist extremism are not real full people with multiple sides to them, then what we're on the lookout for is uh, when we, we try to make sure that something never happens again is we're looking out for um, monochromatic people with E for evil stamped on their foreheads. It's not a useful model. Um, what you do is you show us very heartbreakingly how real complex people who can be loving also can harbor these ideologies and be part of these movements. I think it's also important to ha to take that insight with us as we face new forms of extremism because just to, to give you a very concrete example, I've been working in an area of Sweden where young extremists, neo-Nazis have terrorized a town and there is work going on uh, that tries to reach out to some of these people, particularly the younger people, to try to help them out of these movements. And you, you really can't do that sort of work. There's no hope for that sort of work if you just label them as evil people who uh, can't be saved. People have many different sides, and it's only by seeing those different sides that we can actually have any chance whatsoever of trying to solve the problem of extremism. You know, I'm glad that you mentioned uh, that experience working against extremism in Sweden right now, because I wanted to ask you about the work that you've been doing, about what it's like just on the ground when you go into this town and the Nazis are marching. Um, how can we understand 
what's happening and what do you think works when, when you go there? What do you see actually working to help combat extremism? There are a number of different factors, but I think one of the critical elements is, is certainly what I just mentioned, which is that you don't throw the same hatred as the extremists are expressing back at the extremists themselves. So you have to break that uh, cycle. There is actually, in this particular instance, uh, an organization that has been brought in from the outside that specializes in helping extremists to get out of extremism. So that's one thing. But another factor is that at some point, that town had to decide what it wanted to do. Did it want to keep existing or did it want to close down? Because people were moving out. People don't want to live in places that are infested uh, by extremism where they feel threatened every day and where their their families feel threatened. So all of the institutions in that town decided enough was enough and wanted to, to come together. After the intervention of an interesting outside force, a dear friend of mine, who is a well-known Holocaust survivor here in Sweden, decided to turn up one day and sit with some of the townspeople from different important institutions in the town and say to them, you know, it's very important that you stand up to this. And from her, and, and also to not be afraid. Uh, it was very important for them to, to hear that from somebody whose parents were murdered and um, who managed to save her sister from the gas chamber. So the two of them survived. So she gave them some courage to start their own uh, actions. And uh, this galvanized an entire town. And I was brought in also as a little bit of um, an energy battery to sort of keep keep people focused and encouraged that they were doing the right thing, because it's a, it's a lot of work too. So there are many different factors. There also needs to be uh, somebody who is a form of leader, but who isn't really interested in power. So somebody local to sort of keep everybody coordinated and moving together. And that person also fortunately, fortunately emerged. But I think the interesting thing was that these stories, these stories of history, and hearing these repeatedly through this process of countering extremism were very, very important to this community. Yes. They got a lot of strength and purpose out of that. It's fascinating to me to, to hear your focus on stories. You talked earlier about growing up with this sort of gaping silence. And then, of course, you fill in the story bit by bit by talking to people, by going to archives, by examining records, finding out what actually happened. And you went on to found Stories for Society and then Voices Between, right? Stories, stories against extremism. I can't help noting that in that passage you read in the beginning, there's your grandmother with War and Peace using a story as a refuge, using a story as a place to hide and not face historical responsibility. Mm -hmm. So it seems that stories can cut both ways so that if I'm understanding right, your work, your mission isn't just to have us tell stories, but to make sure that they are used right, that they're in the right hands and pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what if you look at what my grandmother did, she cherry-picked bits of a story to support her own propaganda. That's that's not what I want to do at all. What I see that stories can do if we handle them carefully and, and properly is that they can help people to see many sides of a situation. It can help them to, to see complexity. It can help them to 
to see nuance. It can help us, and by helping to see nuance, it can help also to counteract extremism, because extremism is, of course, about everything but nuance. Yes, it's interesting you mention that, um, and, and important that you mention that, that, of course, stories can be used in, in various ways. And in, in a sense, um, the Third Reich um, used storytelling it was it was one of its one of its main tools, the telling of reductionist stories through propaganda. You know that was Goebbels' job, which is why I think that the power of the kind of writing you're doing, when you're not telling a reductionist story of your grandmother, even as we can hear the racism in what she's saying, you're showing us the full humanity. If all our stories showed the full humanity, then by definition they couldn't be propaganda. Right? They'd they'd be the right kind of stories. I try to do with my grandfather as well, which I'm sure that some people find distasteful because, you know, how can you, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to pass judgment on, on a perpetrator who has, you know, beaten people and been complicit to murder and things like that. You can't, people, people mistake trying to understand for excusing yes, them exactly. and exactly. they're not the same thing. Of course, I don't excuse those things. I, I don't think there's any excuse or forgiveness in the world for beating a child or, or doing those kind of things. But I do think that there is a sort of responsibility to understand. And in my grandfather's case, um, I also go into the fact that, yes, he was once a child too. What happened to, to him during his childhood? Were there factors that made him open to, you know, joining the SS and being a part of this racial war? And indeed there were. Yes. And I think the important thing about that is to see that while there are overall factors that we can read about in history books about why large numbers of people, you know, joined the Nazi party and, and supported Hitler, there are also these personal stories that are very important to understand about why, what it was that in individual situations uh, and about certain at an individual level got people to join because there, we, we usually in a classroom at school very often you know when you're learning about this period you'll hear about the sort of overall factors such as the depression and the um, the harsh terms of the Versailles Treaty and so forth but but what frequently isn't portrayed because there aren't enough stories of perpetrator families out there and and of trying to understand perpetrators out there is that there were these these individual stories and very specific factors that led to to people jumping onto the bandwagon. Absolutely. I think that without understanding, we're powerless. Mm. We're, we're powerless to make any change in the world or to understand what's happening around us if we don't try to understand individual people, which again is, is completely different mm. from forgiveness. Two last things. Certainly, we know that it's essential to persuade people who are susceptible to racist messages to think twice, think more broadly, think about the fuller humanity of all people involved. But I sometimes think that we need to work on our own stances as well, that so often well-intentioned people get in their own way, that there are ways we divide unnecessarily, um, uh, fracture into separate camps, hobble our ability to fight extremism. And I'm thinking a bit of, of um, some controversy with the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum mm -hmm. lately, and I'm wondering if there's anything on that topic that you wanted to speak about. Unfortunately, whatever statement they put out about this, I think, can be damaging if it means that we can't look back at history and identify patterns that may be repeating themselves. 
Because, of course, there are, because human beings haven't fundamentally changed since that time. We, we're the same beings. There have been a lot of very rapid developments and in technology, communications, and so forth. But fundamentally, we're the same. So therefore, it's not that strange that we can repeat certain patterns of behavior in moments of very high stress in the world. My response to this piece of news was that... Uh, you know, I, I, I think it's a, it's a pity because it's a, it's a lost opportunity to really be able to use this, this enormous repository of knowledge and information to really help in, in the current very you know, stressful situation in which we find ourselves. The other thought I have is that, I mean, I'm living proof that history doesn't stop with the moment in which it happened. I uh, feel the reverberations of history in my life and have felt it throughout my life, and I'm 52 years old. I can safely say that, that that history has formed me. It's had an had an enormous impact on the way I see myself, the way I see the world around me, the way I see my family, and so on. And that was even before I had made all of these discoveries. So it really doesn't make any sense uh, to try to pretend that you can sort of compartmentalize history and look at it sort of like a, a lab, you know, a, a lab animal or a exhibit one. <laughs> to me, it isn't possible to contain history in that way. Then I also understand that there's the desire not to misuse the Holocaust in all sorts of comparisons. So I think we have to be careful about how we use the word Holocaust, what kind of comparisons we make, but at the same time not shrink from acknowledging that humans haven't changed very much. We can learn a lot about our behavior from looking back. What can we do now? All of us who are alarmed by the rise of extremism, all of us who, who want to combat it and may feel helpless, where do we go from here? What, what thoughts do you have? What suggestions? Well, I've had countless discussions about this, with, particularly with fellow writers and poets and, and artists who usually um, tend to retreat to their writing desks and, uh, and, and be quiet and, and to themselves. And that's the way we tend to work. But many feel we've come into a moment where we need to do something. And, and the question really is, is what? I think there are many different answers, but my feeling is that there's been a lot of focus on trying to communicate with the so-called other side. Uh, I'm not sure that there is one other side because I think there are lots of nuances of, of people and, and what they think and what they support. And I also think there are a lot of people who are just terribly confused and, and really don't know where they're supposed to stand or where they stand. I'm not so sure that that's the best use of our energies, communication with some with the other side. I think what is most useful in this moment is to seek collaboration where, where there's a form of symbiosis, uh, or let's say to increase the symbiosis, to constantly be building out and increasing our and deepening our collaborations. I mean, years ago, I started an, an initiative when I started to become alarmed about the developments called Tools for Peace, which was a sub-project of Stories for Society. And it was sort of an effort to, to bring together many different kinds of NGOs and actors who 
were equally concerned about, you know, rising racism and anti-Semitism and so forth, and try to get us to collaborate more. As NGOs, we tend to be very focused on our own thing. We tend to be very focused on getting our own grants and talking about our own organizations and our own missions and things like that. I simply felt that... Well, the forces that are eating away at democracy are extremely good at collaborating, and we are not. My main feeling is that we we need to constantly expand and deepen our, our collaborations and give efforts to that. And along the way, if we are convincing enough and we are we're speaking with a true voice, some of those people who feel confused may join us. You know, Western society and in in a way capitalism, the market is a, is a system in which we're supposed to compete against one another in order to be successful. And I think that whole model of things, if we're going to overcome our current challenges, not least to deal with climate change, is going to have to change very fundamentally. I think we're going to have to focus a lot less on competition and a lot more on collaboration. Julie, thank you so much for speaking today. It's, it's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to The Creative Conversations, a production of Voices Between, Stories Against Extremism. To learn more about our work, please visit our website at storiesforsociety.com.